Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Avast for being a sponsor for my podcast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. The first day of the fourth quarter got off to a positive start with all of the major stock market indexes finishing higher. The biggest gainer was the Russell 2000. That index had suffered more in the pullback, up 1.7% on the day, followed by the Dow, which gained 482 points, recovering most of yesterday's 500 plus point sell-off. The weakest of the indexes was the NASDAQ. It was up about 0.67%, although the NASDAQ broke a four-day losing streak. So Friday was the only day of the week where the NASDAQ closed positive. But the catalyst for the rally was an announcement that came out before the open by Merck that they were getting fast-tracked for approval of a very promising antiviral medication for COVID. This is medication that is given to people who have already contracted COVID. So it's not a vaccine or something designed to prevent you from getting it. What it does do is help you get better if you've already got the disease. And so that immediately caused the market to go up, especially those stocks that are associated with the reopening of the economy, of the getting back to normal, 
it was the stay-at-home COVID-type stocks that didn't do as well, or in some cases were actually down on the day. And that's what hurt the NASDAQ because it has all of these tech companies and other stocks that benefited from people staying at home, whereas your traditional brick-and-mortar-type companies are the ones that were more dependent on consumers actually venturing out of their houses and going back to their normal lives. So those were the stocks that benefited. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Merck's new product and about the FDA because this highlights one of the problems that I have with the FDA. So Merck is in the phase three trial of this new drug. And what the phase three trials involve, if you don't know, is random double-blind experiments to prove to the FDA that the drug works. So they're not really looking so much as safety. They pretty much already have concluded that the drug is safe by the time it gets to these stage three trials. What they're trying to show is efficacy. And I've always said that I don't believe that these trials should be necessary, that efficacy should be left to the market not to the government, meaning that to the extent that you're going to have an FDA at all, and I'm not a big fan of an FDA under any circumstances, but if you're going to have one, at least confine it to the more narrow mission of making sure that if a new drug comes to the market, it's not harmful. And in fact, that was the original mission of the FDA. It wasn't until much later that the FDA was expanded and given the added mission of making sure that the drugs also worked, right? It wasn't just that they did no harm, but they had to make sure that they did good. And that's where I think the government has definitely overreached. I think that if a doctor wants to prescribe a safe medication because he thinks it works, the doctor should be free to prescribe it. It shouldn't be up to the government to tell a doctor what he can and cannot prescribe. The same thing with a patient. If a patient wants to try a drug, it doesn't matter if the government doesn't think it works. If the patient wants to give it a shot and is willing to buy it, it's none of the government's business. Now, looking at this particular drug in this phase three, and if you don't understand, again, what the process entails. It is a random double-blind experiment. And what that means is you have two groups of people. You have a control group and then you have another group. And the control group would be given a placebo, right? So they're just getting a sugar pill. There's nothing there. And then the other group, the test group, is given the actual drug. And the reason it's random and double-blind is because Neither the recipients nor the doctors administering the medicine have any idea whether or not the person is being given the actual drug or is being given the placebo. And so the early results from Merck showed that the people who were given the actual drug were hospitalized at a rate that was 50% below the rate of hospitalization for the people who got the placebo. And maybe even more important, none of the people who actually got the real drug died. Whereas eight patients who were given the placebo, they died. And so based on how strong these early results were, the government is saying, okay, let's fast track this drug. We wanna get this therapeutic on the market because it's saving lives. 
what I want to point out is that why were these eight patients sacrificed? If this drug really works, why was Merck forced to give these potentially terminally ill patients a placebo? Why are we treating human beings like lab rats? I mean, I can understand if it's not a terminal disease. If you're trying to look for, let's say, a cure for arthritis, okay, no problem, random double blind, give some people a placebo because if their arthritis doesn't go away, they're still alive. And if the drug ends up working, well, then they can get the actual drug later on. And so their relief from arthritis is merely delayed, right? But if you're talking about a potentially fatal disease to force companies to give potentially terminally ill patients a placebo and watch them die just to satisfy some government bureaucrats, why is this even happening? If you are dealing with something like this, COVID in a situation where people who get COVID may end up dying. Under no circumstances should those individuals be denied a potentially life-saving drug. So forget about these random double-blind experiments when it comes to potentially fatal diseases. Let everybody get the medicine and let the drug companies decide if they think it works without having to compare the people who get the actual drug to the people who get the placebo. I mean, imagine how you would feel if your mother, your father was put into this group and they were one of the eight people who died. And now you know, had they actually been given the real drug that the doctors had in their hand, had they got that drug, your parents would now be alive. But because they were lab rats in an experiment, they had to die. This is what the United States government is doing to American citizens. And of course, these random double-blind experiments cost a fortune. It is a very expensive, probably the most expensive part of the approval process. And so it runs up the cost of the drug. So let's completely abolish the need for doing this. As long as the drug doesn't hurt you, then let it go on the market. Let the free market work. If it doesn't work, nobody's going to buy it. If it doesn't work, doctors aren't going to prescribe it. Let people have the freedom to decide what drugs they want to take. But anyway, let me get back, though, to talking about the markets because pretty much all of the stocks ended up higher on the day. Oil stocks in particular were among the biggest gainers, several of them hitting new 52-week highs. As the price of oil continues to rise, this is now the highest close I think we've seen all year in the price of oil. We're just below $76 a barrel, $75.88. And as a matter of fact, increasing energy costs are an even bigger problem in Europe than they are in the U.S., although the U.S. problem is about to get a lot worse, and will get even worse than that once we finally see a big drop in the value of the U.S. dollar. But I just read a story that the French government was going to try to protect its consumers from increasing natural gas, electricity costs. They're doing all sorts of things to keep prices from moving up even higher. I think they may be delaying certain tax hikes that were already built into the budget for energy, or maybe they're going to roll back some existing hikes. I'm not really sure what type of price controls this might involve 
or some kind of subsidies where the French government pays money directly to utilities or other providers so that the costs are not directly borne by the consumer. But of course, all of this is counterproductive and politically motivated because the elections are coming up. And so the French government doesn't want voters to be pissed off about their rising electric bills. But the reality is, if the government doesn't cut back on its spending, so if it simply delays or reduces taxes on energy, but does it cut spending to offset this loss of revenue, it's just the shifting of the burden of the cost of energy from the consumer to the taxpayer. And the same thing would be true if the government directly reimbursed companies for their costs to keep them from raising prices, since in many cases, the taxpayer and the energy consumer are the same person. All that's happening is that the government is giving you money with one hand and then taking it away from you with the other, except maybe you don't notice the government's hand in your back pocket as it's putting money into your front pocket. Of course, there are going to be some people in France who don't pay taxes if they're on welfare. And so all they do is pay the energy bill, in which case the taxpayer is actually on the hook for more because not only does he have to pay the cost of his own increased energy bill, albeit in the form of higher taxes, but he has to pay even higher taxes to cover the cost of somebody else's energy bill that is not paying taxes. But the bigger problem with what the French government is trying to do is that it will actually exacerbate the very problem. And this is the problem with government. I mean, not only is government very much responsible for the increase in costs because of all the reckless money printing, the ECB is clearly to blame, not for all of what's happening with oil and gas, but for a large part of it because of all the money they're printing. And so that inflation is pushing up the price of everything, in particular, the price of energy. But the other problem is the government is going to be short-circuiting the free market forces that are supposed to come to bear when prices go up. You know, there's an old saying, the best cure for high prices is high prices. Why is that? Well, because when prices go up, consumers react by using less of the good where the price has gone up. So if you do have a big increase in energy costs, consumers will cut back on their usage. Maybe they'll be more efficient with using their cars or they will only heat the rooms of their homes that they're in. They'll be more attentive about turning the lights off in rooms where they are not. I mean, people will find various ways to accommodate to lower their usage. And all of that works to bring down the price. In fact, what the market should be doing when prices are high is kind of rationing out the use so that non-essential uses of energy get cut back so that there's more energy available for those essential uses. And it also helps to keep the price down. But the other factor that comes into play when prices are high is you get more supply. The producers respond to higher prices by trying to provide more of the good that now has a higher price because there's a greater incentive to bring those goods to the market. And maybe there's a greater incentive to invest money in increasing capacity in order to achieve this. And maybe 
because prices are higher, certain efforts that may not have been profitable at the lower price are profitable at the higher price. So higher prices results in two important things that help bring prices back down. You get less demand from consumers, you get more supply from producers, and that exerts a twofold impact on price. That helps bring the price down, which is exactly what you should want. But when the government short circuits that from happening, if they try to insulate consumers from the increased prices, then they don't reduce their demand. If you insulate producers from increased prices, they don't increase their supply. So what the government is effectively doing for political purposes is driving energy prices even higher. So by trying to solve the problem, they make it worse. They claim to be putting out a fire, but instead they're throwing gasoline on the fire. And this is exactly what government does. And of course, as the problem gets much worse, what will the politicians in France do? They'll blame the free market. They'll blame capitalism. And of course, the solution will be more of the same misguided programs that not only created the problem in the first place, but then made that very problem much worse. And of course, all of this means that the pressure on consumer prices is going to continue. But none of that benefiting gold stocks or silver stocks on the day, despite the fact that gold and silver prices were up. I mean, gold wasn't up a lot, maybe about four bucks, but building on yesterday's $30 gain, gold back at 1761, not a bad close. Silver up 36 cents, back above 2250. I think it settled at 2253. But despite the fact that the stock market in general was higher and the price of the gold and silver that the mining companies are mining was higher, these stocks still went down. And I think one of the reasons for the negativity, again, has to do with the massive pumping going on right now among the Bitcoin and the crypto community and everybody coalescing around the idea that Bitcoin or other cryptos have replaced gold. And even though there's actually no evidence of that in gold itself, I think a lot of people who might otherwise be buying gold mining stocks, maybe they're doing something else with their money because they're believing this false narrative that Bitcoin has replaced gold. In fact, in a recent interview with Chamath Palahapitiya, Chamath stated emphatically that Bitcoin has already replaced gold. And CNBC, ever since that statement came out, they've been running and rerunning that clip constantly throughout the day, showing Chamath proclaiming that Bitcoin has already replaced gold. Not that he believes that it will replace gold in the future, but that it's already replaced gold, which is such a laughable statement to make. It's obvious that Bitcoin hasn't replaced gold at all. So why does CNBC have that clip like on a constant loop on its network because obviously this is exactly the type of nonsense that their advertisers want out there because the biggest advertisers on CNBC are cryptocurrency companies Grayscale being number one in fact they have special segments now brought to you by their sponsors that are crypto companies I mean it's non-stop coverage of the crypto market and so when they get a video clip with a guy like Chamath 
lying and saying that Bitcoin has already replaced gold, that's exactly what the CNBC advertisers want. That's the content that they want the viewers exposed to so that they'll be more likely to buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as a result of all the ads that are being run on CNBC. But getting to the issue of Bitcoin having replaced gold, how can it possibly replace gold? Gold is a conservative, low volatility store of value. People buying gold are looking to preserve wealth and have a hedge against inflation. That is not why people are buying Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a highly volatile, extremely speculative asset. People are not buying Bitcoin to preserve anything. People are buying Bitcoin because they think they're going to get rich. It's their ticket to becoming a millionaire. So Bitcoin is actually the antithesis of gold, right? The mirror image, highly volatile speculative asset that people buy to get rich. Gold, very stable store of value that people buy to stay rich. If you're already rich and you don't want to go broke, you can protect your wealth with gold. People are not protecting wealth with Bitcoin. People are looking to amass wealth with Bitcoin. So there is no evidence that Bitcoin has replaced gold as a store of value or as a safe haven. I mean, first of all, look at central banks. Have any central banks sold any of their gold to buy Bitcoin? No, there is not a single central bank other than, you know, I don't know what's going on in El Salvador. They don't really have a central bank because they don't even have their own currency. But of all the real central banks that are out there in the world that have gold reserves, none of those central banks have replaced even one ounce of their gold reserves with a Satoshi. So to say that Bitcoin has already replaced gold is nonsense because it hasn't replaced gold as a reserve asset for central banks. But also, in general, investors that have been buying gold as a store of value or as a safe haven, they continue to hold gold for that reason. They have not replaced their gold with Bitcoin. Even a guy like Ray Dalio, who the Bitcoin community now holds out as a recent convert, right? Somebody who's now pro-Bitcoin. Yes, Ray Dalio admits that he owns some Bitcoin, but he also admits that the amount of Bitcoin he owns is very small in relation to the amount of gold that he owns. And he also claims that the amount of gold that he owns is very small in relation to all of the other assets that he owns. So gold is a small portion of Ray Dalio's portfolio, but Bitcoin is a tiny portion of the gold portion of Dalio's portfolio. So it doesn't seem like Ray Dalio has replaced his gold with Bitcoin. It seems that he's just gambling and he bought a little Bitcoin. In fact, in a more recent interview, Dalio was asked a question about, well, you know, if you can only buy one, which would you buy? And so he responded, well, I guess if you put a gun to my head and said, hey, you can only buy gold or Bitcoin, he said, under those circumstances, I would choose gold. Well, clearly, if he would choose gold over Bitcoin, Bitcoin has not replaced gold. Nowhere has Bitcoin replaced gold except in the mind of Chamath Palihapitiya and maybe the anchors on CNBC or whoever at CNBC decided to put that clip on auto repeat 
on the network, they want to try to convince people that Bitcoin has replaced gold when it hasn't even come close to replacing gold. Of course, that is part of the propaganda of the Bitcoin pumpers that Bitcoin will eventually replace gold, but there is no way to claim that it has already replaced gold. And of course, the one place where it is completely impossible for Bitcoin to ever replace gold is in its use as a metal. You can't replace gold with Bitcoin for jewelry. You can't replace it with consumer electronics. Bitcoin may require a lot of electricity to produce, but once it's produced, it doesn't conduct any electricity. So there is no way to substitute Bitcoin for gold in electronics or aerospace or dentistry or any of the real world applications for gold, which by the way, it is those properties, it is gold's utility as a metal and all of the unique properties that gold has that other metals do not possess, that is ultimately the source of gold's value. But since Bitcoin doesn't possess any of those qualities, there is no source to its value other than the perception in the market. In other words, gold has real value, intrinsic value, which Bitcoin can never duplicate. And so Bitcoin cannot replace gold. All it can do is trade as a speculative token in the market. And its value is merely a result of perception and of the willingness of people to buy it based on their belief that a greater fool will pay an even higher price. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. Avast includes an award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It also provides data breach monitoring. This enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether or not you need to change your password. Also, it provides firewall protection to keep your personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer or steal your data. Also, ransomware protection. Avast secures your personal photos, documents, and other files and protects them from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. In fact, it even increases the speed of your PC by optimizing the background activity of your apps. In fact, I've been using Avast for years myself, which is why I was particularly happy to take them on as a new sponsor. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. We got a lot of economic data too that came out on Friday. One in particular that I want to talk about is the consumer sentiment number, which in August was much lower than expected. It was all the way down at 71. And so there was an anticipated rebound and we got a rebound. We're at 72.8. That is still a relatively low level for this number to be. And the main reason that consumers are in such a pessimistic mood has to do with the increasing cost 
of all the stuff that they're consuming. Inflation, prices are rising. And in fact, if you look at the measure of inflation expectations that is embedded in this survey, how much inflation consumers expect, they now expect future inflation to be 3% per year. This is the highest level of inflation that consumers have expected in a decade. And first of all, I think they're wrong. I think we're going to get even more inflation than what consumers expect. But one thing is clear, the amount of inflation that consumers expect has gone up substantially and it's now at a more than 10-year high. Now, the reason I even bring this up is because Jerome Powell specifically mentions consumer expectations as being a key indicator that the Fed watches. In one of the prior press conferences that Powell held that followed one of the Federal Open Market Committee meetings, Powell pointed to the 1970s and he said the mistake that the Fed made then was in not taking into account expectations that there was initially a transitory increase in prices and the Fed at the time thought the increase was transitory, but the reason it became protracted was because inflation expectations had become embedded and the Fed failed to anticipate how consumer expectations of inflation would actually create real inflation in the future. Now, Powell was wrong. He was trying to blame the inflation of the 1970s on the public. It was the public's fault because they expected too much inflation. He was letting the Fed itself off the hook for all the money it printed or the government off the hook for all the debts and all the money it borrowed that the Fed chose to monetize. Instead, he pretended that it was a result of expectations that were allowed to get out of control. And so what Powell assured the nation was that the Fed would not make the mistake this time of allowing consumer expectations to drive an inflationary spiral. So if the transitory inflation that the Fed has identified and believes is transitory, if consumers threaten to take that transitory inflation and make it something more permanent, because for whatever foolish reasons, they just expect inflation to get worse, right? See, they're not as smart as the Fed or their economists to realize that it's all transitory. If these dumb consumers jump to the erroneous conclusion that inflation is here to stay, they're going to build those expectations into prices, into their wage demands, and that might set off this spiral. And so that's why the Fed is going to be vigilant and watch those expectations and make sure that they remain well anchored at 2%. Well, what we know from this consumer sentiment survey anchors away expectations are already 3%. What's the Fed going to do? Powell claims that the Fed will make sure that expectations remain anchored at 2%. They're not. They're now at 3% and rising. Is the Fed going to do anything? No, the Fed's going to do nothing because it can't do anything because it's all a bluff. And that's what the markets need to realize and when they finally do, when they connect those dots, then none of this rhetoric is going to matter. It's not going to matter what the Fed says, and it's not going to matter 
how bad these inflation numbers are because right now these bad inflation numbers don't make the price of gold go up because every time we get a bad inflation number, the markets expect the Fed to do something to rein in inflation. And they expect that whatever the Fed does to fight inflation will also be negative for gold. But since the Fed is going to do nothing to fight inflation, because it can't, if it could, it already would have, especially looking at these inflation expectation numbers that the Fed is now ignoring, then these bad inflation numbers will be good for gold because people will realize that inflation is getting worse and there's nothing the government's going to do about it and therefore they're going to seek out a real hedge for inflation. And when people are looking for real inflation hedges, they are not going to look at Bitcoin, but they will look at gold. Another data point that was released was the personal income and spending number for August. And again, without a fresh round of stimulus money, consumers are dipping more into their savings. Incomes only rose by 0.2. That was below the 0.3% that had been forecast. In fact, the prior month, the gain was 1.1%. So a big decline from July. But personal spending numbers, 08 that was actually higher than the 0.6% that was expected. Although the prior month's increase of 0.3 was reduced to a decline of 0.1 but still spending up 0.8 income only up 0.6 a big drop in the savings rate in order to make that possible but look at the inflation numbers the core PCE the personal consumption expenditure index look at the PCE the personal consumption expenditure index The year-over-year gain was 4.3%. That is a tick above the 4.2% that it was the prior month. In fact, the expectations was for that number to hold at 4.2. But you have to remember that the personal consumption expenditure index is the Fed's preferred inflation measure. They look at this number far more than they look at the CPI because in general, it is lower than the CPI because it's even more rigged than the CPI when it comes to things like substitution or hedonics. But still, at 4.3% year over year, that's double the Fed's supposed 2% inflation target, yet the Fed does nothing. And in fact, if you strip out food and energy and just look at the core PCE, which may be even more important to the Fed, even there, you got a year-over-year increase of 3.6%. How can the Fed not be concerned about that number and not be doing something now to bring it lower before it gets even higher? Because the higher the Fed allows this number to go, the more difficult it is to bring it back down. So if it actually was their intention to bring it back down, it would be doing something about it now, not waiting for the problem to get worse. In fact, more evidence of that inflation was released by General Motors when they unveiled their third quarter numbers and sales were down quarter over quarter Measuring the Q3 of this year with Q3 of the prior year, Ford sold fewer vehicles. And they're blaming that on the supply bottlenecks. You know, they can't get the chips that go into the cars. And so they can't make as many cars if they don't have the chips. So part of that had to do with the supply bottlenecks. But they also mentioned that average selling price of the cars that they sold this year 
are 20% higher than they were last year. That is a huge gain in one year. The average selling price now of a GM car, $47,467. I mean, we're not talking about BMW or Mercedes. We're talking about GM cars, $47,467. I mean, if we have another 20% increase this year, you're going to be looking at $57,000 to buy a, a GM car. Now, obviously, there could be a slight difference in the type of cars that were sold this year versus a year ago. So it may not be a total 20% increase if you measured apples to apples, but I'm sure the increase is still very substantial. Even if it's not 20% on an apples to apples comparison, maybe it's 15%. Whatever it is, it's much higher than the 2% that the Fed claims its target is or slightly above 2%. You're talking 20%, that's 10 times the 2% number and the Fed's doing nothing about it. And what's also interesting is the 20% increase in GM car prices is pretty much the same increase in home prices. The year-over-year increase in housing prices nationwide is 20%. The price of homes are 20% higher than they were a year ago. What's driving that? Obviously, a lot of that has to do with inflation, but also I think some of it has to do with the return of home flipping where people are buying houses, not because they want to live in them, but because they want to flip them. And in fact, home flipping is not just a mom and pop hobby. It's not that you just have individuals buying, fixing up and flipping homes. It's now been institutionalized. There are a lot of companies that are doing it. One in particular that I want to talk about is Zillow, but you have others. There's a Redfin, Open Door. There's a few others, I forget the names, that are basically doing the same thing. But what Zillow is now doing is buying homes pretty much sight unseen initially just off their website. I mean, the initial model of Zillow was they were just going to help realtors get leads and they were generating income from that. But now most of the income that Zillow makes is from flipping homes. Basically what they do is they allow people to sell their homes online. They basically, I don't know, they upload some photographs of the homes and then based on their own market research, right? they have all the data on comparable sales in that particular zip code and you tell them how many square feet you have, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, whatever it is. And then they come back and they give you an offer And if you accept the offer, then I think they have a local inspector come by just to make sure that the pictures are legitimate, right? That the house is what you claimed. And then if everything checks out, they buy the house. And I was reading on the internet about what Zillow is doing. And they're not trying to buy the classic fixer-upper. They're not looking to buy a house that needs a lot of work and then do all the work and then flip it for a higher price, they're basically looking for houses that they can buy and just immediately sell. I mean, maybe they require a little bit of cosmetic work just to make the house a little bit more presentable to an actual buyer. And so their goal is just a small profit. They want to buy the house slightly below the fair market value. 
and then they want to sell it at the fair market value. But to me, this seems like a completely ridiculous business model that exposes Zillow to a tremendous risk. But what do they care, right? They're borrowing all this money super cheap with 0% rates and they're able to flip houses. If there really was a big delta between how much the house would sell for in the market versus what Zillow was paying, the homeowner wouldn't be dumping the house on Zillow. If the guy that owns the house thought he can get a much higher price just selling it on his own and hiring a realtor, that's what he would do. If he's not doing that, if he's dumping the house to Zillow, then it's because Zillow is giving him a much better deal. Now, maybe if it's just slightly less than he can get on his own because, hey, I don't have to deal with the hassle, I don't have to pay a realtor a commission, but if it's just slightly less, what is Zillow hoping to gain? You're talking about a tiny profit, but you're risking a tremendous amount of money. Plus, I'm sure the guy that actually owns the house and who is dumping it to Zillow. He is a lot more familiar with the problems in that house. Zillow's gonna have no idea, and the guy that comes over to verify the photographs, he's gonna have no idea. So in this case, I'm sure the seller who's been living in the house and is very familiar with all of the problems or all the shortcomings or what the market is, that guy knows more about what his house is really worth than Zillow does. And so he's probably getting a good price. Zillow is probably overpaying for most of these houses. But also, I think what's going on when you have so many businesses that are buying houses to flip them, I think it really exaggerates the the sales numbers because I don't think these should qualify as sales, but they are because when Zillow buys a house, it counts as a sale because Zillow is the buyer. So all of these home sale numbers are being inflated by the number of homes that Zillow or Redfin or Open Door or these other companies are buying. But they shouldn't really count as sales because they're not really sales. Because a real sale is when somebody sells a house to another person who is really buying the house and now they're going to live in the house. And so that house is no longer for sale. It's no longer on the market because it's been sold. But when Zillow buys a house, it's not buying the house to live in it. It's buying the house to turn around and resell the same house. So you really haven't sold the house when you sell it to Zillow. All you're doing is taking a house that was on the market from an individual owner, and you're just putting that same house on the market through Zillow. So it really doesn't reduce the supply of homes on the market. When there's a legitimate sale, if one person who sells a house to another person who actually wants to live in it, that house is off the market, right? But if I sell my house to Zillow, who's just gonna flip it, it's still on the market. And at least when mom and pop was buying a house and flipping it, they were adding value. What they were doing is finding a home that nobody really wanted to buy in the market because it just didn't present right because it had a lot of problems. And what they would do is they would get a bargain on that house. They buy the house that nobody wants because they have the vision and the skills to make the improvements in a cost-effective way so that they can fix that house up and then sell it at a higher price. They're not just simply gambling. They're getting paid for their work and their efforts in remodeling this home and doing it in an economic way. Now, a rising real estate market, of course, makes that 
even more profitable if the value of real estate in general goes up between the time you acquire the property and go to flip it. Well, that's the icing on the cake. But even if the real estate market doesn't go up, you can add value through the improvements. But Zillow's not trying to do that at all. Zillow's not really improving the home. It just wants to flip it. And all of this, again, is distorting the real estate market. It's obviously helping to inflate real estate prices. But ultimately, I think it's setting Zillow shareholders up for some huge losses when they get stuck with a huge inventory of homes that they haven't been able to sell and for which they overpaid. But since I've been speaking about prices going up for things like automobiles or homes, I want to finish up the podcast, though, by speaking about the one thing where prices seem to always go up and they go up by more than anything else, and that's college tuition and education because there was a story in the news this week about Navient basically exiting the student loan business and selling off all of the student loans that it was servicing to another company. And I don't really want to talk so much about Navient's exit from this business. I want to talk about Elizabeth Warren's response to the news. First, let me read the quote from Elizabeth Warren. Navient has spent decades misleading, cheating, and abusing student borrowers. The federal student loan program will be far better off without them. Ultimately, the student loan system is broken. The only way to guarantee that borrowers do not face the same predatory behavior from Navient's replacement is to cancel student debt so that no borrower's future is held hostage by corporations profiting off their financial distress. All right, so (laughs) there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, maybe Elizabeth Warren doesn't remember this, but Navient only exists because of the U.S. government. The U.S. government created its predecessor, Sally May, back in 1973 as a government-sponsored enterprise. That's where Navient came from. It spun off of Sally May. So the government created it. So if it has been abusing students, if it's been doing all of this bad stuff, it's the government that is to blame because this is a government creation. That's number one. But number two, when you're talking about profiting off of the financial distress of students, why are these students in financial distress in the first place? It's because they're drowning in student debt. Okay, well, why do they have all this student debt? That's because of the government. If it wasn't for the government and their guaranteed student loan program, and now their direct student loan program, these students wouldn't have all this debt. So the reason they are in such financial distress is because of the government. Now, Elizabeth Warren is upset that a private corporation that was created by the government to service the loans that wouldn't exist but for the government, she's upset that they're making a profit off of the financial distress of the borrowers without accepting responsibility for putting those borrowers in financial distress in the first place. If it wasn't for these student loans, the students wouldn't have the debt. Nobody would lend them money. If you're 18, 19 years old, especially if you're going for a liberal arts degree, what bank is going to lend a student money? Nobody. 
the only reason these loans are made is because they are guaranteed by the government. Because then it's not like you're loaning money to the student, you're loaning money to the government. That's why the loans are there. And also the government has made it so that student loans are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. I've never agreed to that. I think that all debt should be dischargeable in bankruptcy, but I don't think the government should guarantee any debt. So I think that to the extent that a student wants to borrow money, he needs to convince a lender to loan him the money based on his own credit worthiness, and the lender has to take the risk that that student may file for bankruptcy, which of course no reasonable lender would ever do. So but for the government, students would not be able to borrow money to go to college. Now, what would that mean? Would that mean that nobody would go to college? Of course not. People went to college long before they had government student loans. The difference was it didn't cost them an arm and a leg. College tuition was much lower before the government got involved in the student loan business. So if the student loans weren't there, the colleges would then be under competitive pressure to cut costs because they need their customers, the students, to be able to afford to buy their product. If they can't buy the product, then they're not going to have any sales. Now, right now, the students can afford to buy the products because the government supplies the money through the loan program. So no need to be efficient, no need to try to cut costs. But if the students can't borrow all of that money, well, then the free market is going to function and colleges are going to do whatever they can to lower their costs so they can make their product affordable, which was exactly the way it was before the government got involved and screwed the whole thing up. Now, I've talked about this in the past, but I know I have you know a lot of new listeners that may not have heard my comments on the topic. So I'll go over it again here. But once upon a time in America, nobody borrowed money to go to college. You know, my father was a graduate of UConn and he didn't have any student loans and his parents didn't have any money to pay for college. So how did my dad afford to go? Well, he did what all of his friends did. He worked his way through college. And that was a common expression. I'm working my way through college. That's what Americans did. If their parents didn't have the money to send them to college, they worked their way through. And what did my father do? He had a summer job as a waiter. He didn't even work during the school year. He just worked over the summers. And the money he earned over the summer was enough to cover all of his college tuition. So when my father graduated from UConn, he had no debt. Now, what happened, I think a lot of politicians were able to get the votes of students by promising loans. And I think one of the reasons they were able to do that is they were telling the students, hey, why should you have to work your way through college? Why should you have to waste your summer waiting tables? Go out and have fun. We'll let you borrow the money and then when you get a job after you graduate and you know, you're know you making even more money, you can pay off the loans later on so that you can enjoy your summers now while you're young, have fun. Why take some crappy waiter job, wait until you get your college degree and then you get a really good high paying job and then you can pay off your loans with your higher salaries. And that was kind of what the students were promised in exchange for their votes. Of course, now, the students are graduating with basically the equivalent of a mortgage, but they don't even have a house. But a lot of people just don't understand 
how inexpensive college used to be because they've grown up during this system. They don't realize what it was like before the government got involved. I've often pointed to Yale University tuition as an example because it's been around for a long time and I've got the data. So if you look at the tuition from Yale University from 1810 to 1852, during that 42-year period, the tuition at Yale was exactly the same. It was $33 per year. So you had a 42-year period without a single increase in tuition. I mean, tuition goes up every year now. There isn't a single year where tuition isn't higher than it was the year before, but here you've got this 42-year period and tuition is exactly the same. Now, $33 a year, what is that in today's money? Well, gold was $20 an ounce, so that means that a year at Yale was 1.65 ounces of gold. Well, if you look at today's price of gold, that would equate to $2,887.50 for a year of Yale. Well, how much does Yale cost right now? What is the tuition? It's $60,000 a year. So in other words, the cost to go to Yale adjusted for inflation is 20 times the price from 1810 to 1852. In fact, Yale tuition has increased by 100% in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, it was 30,000. It's doubled to 60,000 in 10 years. Yet you had this 42-year period where the price was exactly the same. Now, here's another period where the price increased from 1874 to 1918, right? That's a 44-year period. And during those 44 years, tuition went up by 14% in 44 years. And of course, there was actually a lot of inflation during that time period because you had the inflation that basically started during the Civil War but continued and then went into the First World War. But even with all that inflation, you only had a 14% increase in 44 years compared to what I just said, a 100% increase in the last 10 years. But think about that. $160 in 1918. What was that in terms of work? Let's not look at it in terms of the price of gold, but work. Because I did a podcast not too long ago where I talked about the Ford factory workers who were making $5 a day working at Ford in the production line. So let's compare the $160 tuition to go to Yale for a year to how much a Ford factory worker earned. So if the Ford worker earned $5 a day, that worker would have to work for 32 days to buy one year of Yale tuition. And by the way, back then there were no income taxes. There were no federal income taxes. There were no state income taxes. There was no social security payroll taxes. There was nothing. So if you earned $5 a day gross, you took home $5 a day net. I mean, there really was no such thing as take-home pay back then because your pay was your take-home pay because there were no taxes. So you had to work for 32 days to buy a year's tuition at Yale, which is what? A month. Well, today, if Yale costs $60,000, how long does the average Ford worker have to work to buy one year of Yale tuition? Well, I think the average factory worker is making $45,000 a year, maybe a little bit more, but you know, not that much more. I think it's under 50 grand. 
But let's say after taxes, because you got payroll taxes, union dues, which, you know, they didn't have unions back then at Ford, but you take the payroll taxes, union dues, and income taxes, state and local income taxes. I bet they don't even have 40000 a year after tax. But let's just assume it's 40000 a year after tax. That would mean that that worker would have to work one and a half years, 18 months, to buy one year of Yale tuition. So that's 18 times as long as his counterpart had to work 100 years ago who had a job at Ford. So if you're working at Ford and you got a kid who wants to go to Yale, right? Well, if you were working at Ford in 1918, you just had to set aside one month of your salary and you can cover all of the cost of your son's or daughter's Yale tuition. Yet today, the worker would have to set aside a year and a half worth of income, which is impossible to do. It wasn't impossible to do 100 years ago when you only had to set aside a month's worth of income, but it's totally impossible today when you need a year and a half. And that's just for one year. That means for four years of Yale, you'd have to save six years of salary. Who can set aside six years worth of salary? Whereas in 1918, you only needed to set aside four months of salary. That was doable. Four months for an entire four years. Now you need six years for four years. And of course, now a lot of people don't even graduate Yale in four years. They take five or six years. All of this was the fault of government. And of course, if the Ford factory worker couldn't save the one month's worth of salary to pay for his kid's Yale education. Well, the kid could get a job and work his way through college and pay for it himself, which is exactly what my dad did. And in fact, if you think about it logically, college should be cheaper today than it was 100 years ago. I mean, they didn't have computers back then. I don't even know if they had typewriters. They certainly didn't have copy machines, which are even obsolete by the computers. But the whole process of educating kids based on all of the technology that exists today that we didn't have 100 years ago, all of that technology should have reduced the cost of education. But another thing that really should have reduced the cost of education is economies of scale. Far more people are going to college today than went to college 100 years ago. The classroom sizes are much bigger. So you have a lot more students for every professor. And so based on that, based on the economies of scale, if you have so many more customers than you used to have, on a per person basis, the cost should be much lower. In other words, it should cost a lot less based on improvements in technology that make the whole process more efficient and massive increases in economies of scale. All of this should be bringing down the cost per pupil. But instead of costs going down, they have skyrocketed. Why? There is only one explanation for this, and this is the government's involvement in the process. If the government had stayed out, then the free market would have stayed in and college would no longer be a burden on anybody. In fact, one of the most ironic aspects of the whole thing is that before government got involved in college, a college degree was actually very valuable. I mean, if you got a college degree, it meant a lot. And in fact, most people didn't even need college degrees. There was no point in going to college because a high school degree was fine. 
Now that the government has gotten involved and we have everybody going to college, number one, the high school degree now means nothing because everybody gets a college degree. So the high school degree no longer buys you the type of job that it used to buy. And in fact, I don't even think today's high school graduates are anywhere near as competent as the high school graduates from 100 years ago. I think personally that your typical high school graduate 100 years ago knew a lot more than your typical college grad today. In fact, I bet that most people who graduate college today couldn't even pass the exams that high school seniors were passing 100 years ago. So I think the quality of the education across the board has gone down. But the point is, by steering everybody to college, the government has totally destroyed the value of a once valuable high school diploma, but they've also destroyed the value of a college degree. Because now, because everybody gets a college degree, the college degree no longer distinguishes you from the crowd the way it once did. So now, if you really want to distinguish yourself and stand out, you can't just get a college degree. Now you need a master's degree. Now you need a doctorate. And look how much money people are borrowing to buy those degrees and how many more years they're not in the workforce, how many more years they have to waste in school to get an advanced degree because the government made the normal four-year college bachelor's degree worthless. So think about this. The government has increased the cost of a college degree almost 20-fold, basically, from where it was. So they're extremely expensive to get, but in the same process, they have completely destroyed the value. So now they're really expensive to buy, but practically worthless to anybody who actually buys them. That's government for you. That's what this government has managed to achieve when it comes to higher education. It has driven the quality down and the cost up. So now you pay a fortune for a practically worthless degree that people were able to easily afford on their own before government got involved. And before government got involved, the degrees themselves were inexpensive and the value was high. You had high value and low cost. And with government, you have low value and high cost. So what this proves is not what Elizabeth Warren is saying, that we should just forgive all the student loans. What it proves is that we should get the government out of student loan originating or guaranteeing in the first place. We should get the government completely out of higher education. We should abolish the Department of Education. There was no Department of Education 100 years ago when education was cheap and high quality. So let's get rid of it. Let's save the money. And in fact, I don't have time in this podcast, but I would like to get government out of education across the board. I don't even think the government should be involved with K through 12 education on a local level. I think the free market would deliver a much higher quality of education going from kindergarten through 12th grade than government schools. The government schools have done a horrible job. The evidence is plain for everybody to see. And what we need is free market competition to bring quality into education while lowering the cost. Oh, 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 oh,